Hello and welcome back to Sari the Fairy Reads Books. Um, I am taking a bit of a different direction with my next book. So I subscribed to Book of the Month and while I was looking at something to read next, they had a section recommending um, books by black authors, you know, black voices telling black stories. And I was really intrigued by the book Thick by Tressie McMillan Cotton. Cotton? I always say it wrong. Um, and so I just wanted to share this with you just as a disclaimer, but I feel like it's a perspective that we desperately need to hear in this world right now. Um, so I guess sit back and get ready for Thick. Thick. Thick ethnography provides readers with a proxy experience for living in another culture such that they engage with its richness, pick up the threads, and do what members do, which is to generate new meanings from the same cultural repertoire. Roger Gomm and Martin Hammersley. Like my women, like what? Thick and pretty, pretty and thick. Migos, thick and pretty. These hips are big hips. They need space to move around in. They don't fit into little petty places. These hips are free hips. Lucille Clifton. I was pregnant at 30 divorced at 31, lost at 32. How else would I have ended up in a place called Rudine's? Rudine's was an institution. It sat in a strip mall on a street, Beatty's Ford Road, that had once been the heart of the new black middle class in Charlotte, North Carolina. As went the fortunes of black homeownership, entrepreneurship, wealth creation, citizenship, and health, so went Beatty's Ford Road. Rudine's held on, so did Rudine. The establishment was named for its owner, even though it perhaps would have sounded better were it not. But I do not tell old black people nothing. It is rude. What wasn't rude was Rudine's reputation. You grew up on jokes about the old players and aging fly girls living out their glory days at Rudine's, the nightclub that also sold fried fish plates and chicken wings. You had to get there early because parking was slim pickings and there were only maybe a dozen or so tables pressed up against a long wall on the empty side of the room. The other wall had the bar, wrapped in tufted pleather, and papered with liquor ads featuring smiling, glorious black people living the high life. You ordered your fish at the bar. If you were early enough, you could eat it at a table as bodies pressed by you, inching and beat together. After you ate, if you were feeling extra festive, you slid through those bodies and an oddly narrow doorway into a second room in the back. Narrow like the front room, but in the different direction, horizontal to the room, front room's vertical. This was the dance floor. Going to Rudine's your first time was a rite of passage. In your teens, you laughed at Rudine's. In your twenties, you joked about sugar daddies at Rudine's. When you hit thirty, you busted your Rudine's cherry. On my first of only two visits to Rudine's, I sat alone at the bar waiting for friends as a man sidled up next to me. He talked, I mostly demurred, and waited on my croaker plate, fried hard. Just before he asked me for my phone number, he said, Your hair thick, your nose thick, your lips thick, all of you is just thick. It was true if not artfully stated. Being too much of one thing and not enough of another had been a recurring theme in my life. I was, like many young women, expected to be small so that boys could expand and white girls could shine. 
When I would not or could not shrink, people made sure that I knew I had erred. I was, like many black children, too much for white teachers and white classrooms and white study groups and white Girl Scout troops and so on. Thick where I should have been thin, more when I should have been less, a high school teacher nicknamed me Miss Personality, and it did not feel like a superlative. I had tried in different ways over the years to fit. I thought I could discipline my body and later my manners to take up less room. I was fine with that. But I learned that I, even I had limits when, in my pursuit of the life of the mind, my thinking was deemed too thick. On one of my first forays into publishing anything, an editor told me that I was too readable to be academic, too deep to be popular, too country black to be literary, and too naive to show the rigor of my thinking and the complexity of my prose. I had wanted to create something meaningful that sounded not only like me, but like all of me. It was too thick. Once I was at an academic conference, well, I am at many academic conferences because I am an academic, but this conference stands out for the moment when a senior academic, a black woman, marched over to me and said without preamble, you need to stop writing so much, they're just using you. At the time, I was just a graduate student. I was finishing my dissertation, but that was not exactly the point of contention. The real point of contention was that I was also one of the most published working sociologists in print and digital media. It was, and still is, a strange juxtaposition. Graduate students are not people. In the academic hierarchy, graduate students are units of labor. They can be students, but not just students. They are academics in the making. They do not have any claim to authority among scholars. In fact, the most surefire way to get a real, minted academic to speak to you when you are just a graduate student is to introduce yourself by proxy. Hi, I am Tressie, student of Richard Rubison and Sta Sandy Darity, and I know five other people who you recognize as people. It is hard to get that out in the three seconds humans generally give each other to establish small talk during routine social interactions. That is why you can, at almost any gathering of academics, find graduate students milling about in small packs, finishing sentences after someone who did this dance decades ago has already walked away. The point that the very well-meaning senior academic was making that day was a fair one. I was not a real person. The problem was that the rest of the world did not quite know that. Or, rather, if they thought I was not a real person, one worthy of consideration and engagement, they did not think that it was because I was just a graduate student. The first time I wrote the first time anything I wrote went viral, I was in the middle of taking exams in non-parametric statistics. It was a horrible time. The leading publication of my profession had published a hit article about a group of young scholars almost all women of color, and all identifying as black. I wrote an essay about the article on my blog. In the span of 24 hours, the essay had become a petition that became a social media firestorm that became a series of essays on websites and blogs that became a white woman getting fired for writing the hit piece. That is as much impact as some academics have their entire lives, much less in 24 hours. But the more incredible story is that I was just a black girl, a little long in the tooth, but still in my mind just a black girl writing. Black girls do not cause problems for powerful white women or august professional publications or public discourse. Black girls have not, 
for most of my understanding of our history in this nation, had the power to cause those kinds of problems. Black girls and black women are problems. That is not the same thing as causing problems. We are social issues to be solved, economic problems to be balanced, and emotional baggage to be overcome. We work. Lord, do black girls and black women work. We start work early before it is paid work. Then we start paid work, and most of us never stop, are unable to ever stop. We work to keep churches financially viable, black colleges in business, black families functioning, black politics respectable, and black men alive. In all of our working, we can sometimes work the wrong way. That is what I was doing. I was working the wrong way for a black woman who did not want to become a problem. At the time, I was far too hurt to understand what the sister in the academic conference hall was telling me. When you are vulnerable and on the losing end of a power dynamic, all you can hear of that kind of direct, unsolicited feedback is how, despite all of your hard work, you are still doing everything wrong. But I have thought a lot about that moment and all the moments that have shaped what kind of thinker I have become. This is what this book is about. Before I was a real academic, I was a black woman, and before I was a black woman, I was a black girl. I was a certain kind of black girl. I am the only child of an only child who was the child of a woman whose grandparents had been touched by slavery. We are southern, almost pedestrianly so. We are the people who went north to Harlem, but not west to St. Louis or California during the Great Migration when millions of black people traveled their own nation as refugees. That is important to know because there is not just one black woman experience, no matter how thick one black woman may be. My people were escaping poor white trash who made it hard to pay taxes to keep the bits of worthless land that meant the world to us to own. We were escaping black men who drank too much and sometimes touched little girls too long in ways that were both wrong and acceptable. We were escaping a racial hierarchy where engines could pass as biracial blacks in the shadows of native lands that had been stolen but then cohabitated in ways that made determining who was black and who was red a game with high stakes for survival. We were respectable. We went to church and paid tithes and wore slips and we drank but had the good sense to be ashamed that we did. We whispered when we said bad words and we valued hard work and education as evidence of our true worth. We did not want to be problems. Much to my chagrin, I was actually born in a Harlem hospital and not a decent southern maternity ward. We were in Harlem because that is where jobs were. Shortly after I was born, it became clear that my newborn chicken wings were not straightening out as nature usually demands. You know that stage where newborns are still folded up like adorable wingdings. Over time, they stretch out and develop the straight spines and legs that let us walk normal. I would not walk normally. One leg, the right one, is still clawing its way back to its in utero comfort zone. There is a medical term for it, but we called it being pigeon-toed or bow-legged. You can be one or the other and be cute. I am both. That is not cute. It is a kind of birth defect, really. The doctors at Harlem Hospital told my mother that it could be fixed. Really should be fixed. As she tells it, the surgery would involve breaking both of my legs, resetting them, wearing hard casts and then soft, followed by however many years of braces necessary. When she tells the story, she gets a little teary-eyed. I couldn't let them do that to my baby. And so, I would live broken. My mother could not fathom the cost of fixing me, 
but she could count the cost of teaching me to fix myself. I have several mantras committed to memory, but the one that I remember first and most is my mother's voice shouting, fix your feet. Every time I stood up, the voice said, fix your feet. Every time I got tired and lazy, reverting to bowed back legs and crooked toes, it whispered, fix your feet. When I started walking and then later started strutting, I would hear it, fix your feet. It meant straighten your toes, adjust your hips, lock your knees, and walk like a normal person. Fixing my feet became a way of life for me, an undercurrent of thousands of messages that form the subconscious playlist of our identity. It plays alongside other whispers like, work twice as hard, and keep your legs closed, and don't talk to strangers, and don't be a stranger, and remember who you are and where you came from. I fixed my feet my whole life. I never walked normally but I do not walk like I am deformed. By the time I was 12 years old, the first adult man of my life told me I was sexy. Look at her walk, he said. The first month of my brand new job as a professor, many decades later, a colleague shouted, we know that was you from that walk. I had fixed my feet and they had fixed me. Now my right hip bothers me. I have recently acquired the health insurance of the solidly middle class. To celebrate, I made appointments with every kind of doctor listed in the manual. A new physical therapist brought all her colleagues around to see the extent of what they kindly called my extreme maladaptation. She tells me I should sympathize with my mother. The science used to be so cruel, especially for children, she says. She tells me that I made it work and it is okay that after years of fixing my feet, I may have worn out parts of my hip and spine. But look how far you've come. I have come very far. I had come so far that I could be considered a problem. It is an honor of sorts. I was writing and I was doing so without express permission from gatekeepers. I had, by my third year in graduate school, published hundreds of essays in national and international newspapers and media outlets. I was called upon to weigh in on issues like technology and education, racism in higher education, social media and labor movements, and Barack Obama, period. I am now an academic, an official one. I have the job and the title and the letters after my name that black people are so fond of calling our educational credentials. Still, there is some tension about how I got here and what I do here. I feel the tension from colleagues who cannot process why I receive so much attention. I feel it from publics who cannot fathom why I do not get more attention or different kinds of attention. Editors want me to be a journalist. Journalists want me to stay as far away from their beat as possible. Publishers want a black woman on their pages without the expense of adding one to their mastheads. No one quite knows what to make of the work that represents the intellectual journey I took from little black girl to black woman who thinks for a living. I attribute a lot of that tension to a fundamental misunderstanding of what I do. The essays in this volume dance along the line of the dreaded first-person essay. Dreaded because the genre has become identified with so many people and things that our culture loves to hate. Women, people of color, queer people, young people, and the internet. In 2017, Gia Tolentino wrote in The New Yorker that the personal essay boom is over. Tolentino was responding to a series of public articles about first-person essays in mainstream and digital publications. The first-person essay often had a hook, what we jokingly called on Twitter a Slate Pitch, named for the publication Slate, a Washington Post company digital publication. 
A slate pitch, or hook, is a counterintuitive headline designed to spark debate when shared on social media sites. It is often conflated with clickbait. clickbait, mm, Clickbait are articles, content really, written for the express purpose of making people click on a link for the website that earns money from advertisers for every click it generates. A slate pitch, or counterintuitive hook, is not necessarily clickbait. Very good essays are often written and then marketed using the slate pitch. The result is all kinds of mockable headlines like, My gynecologist found a ball of cat hair in my vagina, that actually link to a thoughtful first-person essay about navigating societal societal expectations of cleanliness as a woman. Regardless, the rush for advertising dollars that had fueled the personal essay was over. The epilogues had been written. They went something like this. Women writers had oversaturated a market with their self-indulgent essays about issues that cannot scale to a general audience. These women writers had done so mostly for pay, but more so for attention, as there was very little good pay happening for the personal essay. Predatory publications used these women to drive their internet traffic, subjecting them to ridicule and even real violence when nefarious groups targeted these writers for harassment. The personal essay was dead, and not a minute too soon. Except the personal essay dragnet may have been cast too wide and too deep to be of much use as a device for anything but systemic discrimination. Black women writers spoke up about the personal essay. For them, it was the only point of access for telling the creative stories of empirical realities. Latina said the same. Queer women and trans women and all manner of women stepped forward to add dimensions to what the personal essay form is and what it is assumed to be. The personal essay was an economic problem and a social problem dressed up as a cultural taste problem. The women with cat hair, the woman with cat hair in her vagina is probably certifiably insane. Let's just get that out of the way. I do not ever want to know about that much cat hair being in any bodily orifice. I am also anti-cat, generally speaking, and definitely when the issue is fur balls in one's vaginal cavity. I do not want to read it. I also do not want to read about men's fascination with guns or stock car racing or long walks in the woods. I do not want to read Infinite Jest or talk to people about reading Infinite Jest. I do not want to listen to stories about Lake Wobegon or the mild humor of white suburban interpersonal politics. None of those things appeal to me, and yet all of these takes on the personal essay were excluded from the form's obituary. We weren't killing the personal that we weren't killing the personal essay so much as we as were killing those who used the personal essay to become a problem. The obituaries missed this because their authors do not know about fixing their feet. That is a black woman's specialty. The personal essay had become the way that black women writers claim legitimacy in a public discourse that defines itself, in part, by how well it excludes black women. In a modern society, who is allowed to speak with authority in a political in a modern society, who is allowed to speak with authority is a political act. Of course, all U.S. citizens are allowed to speak. We have an entire amendment guaranteeing us this right with notable exclusions like hate speech and prisoners, who can be arbitrarily denied speech by the state. But not all of us are presumed by the publics to which we belong to have the right to speak authoritatively. Speech becomes rhetoric, or a persuasive form of speech, only when the one speaking can make a legitimate claim to some form of authority. 
It can be a moral authority or legal authority or rational authority. At every turn, black women have been categorically excluded from being expert performers of persuasive speech acts in the public that educates our human humanity. As women, black women face challenges of appealing to rationality in public discourse because our culture has decided that women are irrational and emotional. Logic and reason are beyond our biological and cultural programming. Excluded from the discourse that is ruled by what I have called professionally smart people, or those who are institutionalized as the official rational votes in public rhetoric, black women could try to appeal to their moral authority. In a modern capitalist society, what is moral is often determined by what has economic value. As social and economic subjects in this system, we ad hoc ascribe morality to all kinds of capital and status that reifies social categories that exclude black women by definition, wealth, high income, professional status, marriageability, religious leadership, beauty. The very moral goods that would suffice to make moral claims in public discourse are eliminated by how efficiently they do not include black women. Empirically, black women have generations of earned and inherited moral philosophy that has sustained families, communities, and institutions. Despite this, black women find that the public discourse is not generally willing to accept that we are moral authorities on much at all. Where black women have excelled is in the pursuit of legal authority or the technical qualifications of social status. We go to school. We will, on average, go to all the school that the constraints of, on our time and money will allow us. Black women have high educational aspirations and continue to outflank black men in educational attainment. Even outside that narrow purview of professionalization, professionalization though, black women strive for forms of professional status. We start businesses at surprisingly high rates, given how little family wealth we have to draw on or social networks we have to support us. We perform phenomenally high rates of community service and lay leadership in churches, schools, and civic organizations. We are, it could be argued, professional professionals. In public discourse, our aspirations and achievements and professions should translate into the right to speak authoritatively on something, on anything, on politics, on economics, on sports, on education, on climate science, on urbanization, at the very least on our own lives. But, as Stasia L. Brown points out in her essay on how and why black women writers find themselves hewn to the personal essay genre, black women find that no amount of pathos, logos, or ethos includes them in the civic sphere of public discourse and persuasion. We do not have enough authority, as judged by the audiences and gatekeepers who decide to whom we should listen, to speak on much of anything. For us, the personal essay genre became a contested point of entry into a low-margin form of public discourse where we could at least appeal to the politics of white feminist inclusion for nominal representation. We were writing personal essays because as far as authoritative voices go, the self was the only subject men and white people would cede to us. We had learned, or have always known, that we cannot change the public, and we cannot change the minds of those on whom we rely to grant us the audience that confers moral authority to speak in public. We could not fix the world, but we could fix our own feet. And so, black women writers have fixed their feet. We have shoehorned political analysis and economic policy, 
and social movements theory and queer ideologies into public discourse by bleeding our personal lives into the genre afforded us. Legacy media and majority white-owned digital media platforms made more money from black women's personal essays than any black woman I know of ever made from publishing them. That is what the senior academic meant when she said they were using me. She thought that the Washington Post and Slate, where I had a column for a while, In Descent and Talking Points Memo and The Atlantic and the other 20-plus outlets that had published my essays were using me to darken their web hits without darkening their staff. I was bleeding when I should have been thinking. Thinking was the job of a graduate student, not bleeding. The problem for me was not the second part of the sister's proclamation, but the first. Stop writing. I can no more stop writing than I can stop fixing my feet. It is killing my hip, and it may look sexy to a subset of geriatric black men who like their women thicker than a snicker, but I cannot stop executing my extreme maladaptation. Fixing my feet is so deeply ingrained in my psyche that to dislodge it, I would have to fundamentally change who I am and how I interact with the world. Fixing my feet is about accepting the complex reality of black life in the 21st century. I am living in the most opportune time in black history in the United States, and that means, still, that I will die younger, live poorer, risk more exposure to police violence, and be punished by social policy for being a black woman in ways that aren't true for most any other group in this nation. That is the best it has ever been to be black in America, and it is still that statistically bad at the macro level. Fixing my feet means knowing that I am no one's beauty queen and few people's idea of an intellectual, public or otherwise, and showing up anyway. Fixing my feet means knowing how badly the outcomes are likely to be for persisting and pursuing, but doing it anyway. I fix myself, even when it causes great pain to do so, because I know that I cannot fix the way the world sees me. When I write, I am fixing my feet. I am claiming the ethos, or moral authority, to influence public discourse, and I am defying every expectation when I do it. What I am not doing is writing personal essays. Despite knowing how critical the genre is to black women's participation in publics, I cannot in good faith say that I have ever thought of my essays as belonging to the genre. At the same time, I am not one of the literary writers of black experience. I do not paint ethereal black worlds where white people can slip into our narratives and leave unscathed by judgment for their unearned privilege. I am also not that kind of beautiful writer that I love, the ones who tell the stories that arrive in my issue of the Oxford American every quarter, those glorious artists who win awards at programs where they wear flowy dresses and take pictures mid-sanguine smile. I am hopelessly tethered to reality, not fiction, or even creative nonfiction. I may be a storyteller, but even that is more a claim of birthright than any legitimate claim that I can make to the craft of telling stories. I am not even, perhaps, a stodgy social sociologist or cut-and-dried ethnographer. My ethnographies have too much structure, and my sociology is a bit too loose with voice. A bit slutty it all is, really, jumping between forms and disciplines and audiences. My writing is a high body count, as the kids say. But sociology comes as close to the core of where my essays start as anything else I have explored. Drawing on what ethnographers have called thick description, 
I finally found a label as complex as my way of thinking. I take very seriously the idea of social locations. We are people with free will, circumscribed to different degrees by history, histories that shape who we are allowed to become. I am, by most measures, pretty smart. My, my grandmother was smarter. She was do the times crossword and pen smart. She was teach yourself liberal arts with a library card smart. She was, for most of her life, a domestic worker for rich Jewish people who sent me cards when I got good grades in school. The Edelmans, the Goldmans, the Finkelsteins. When she died, quickly, thank God, all of my grandmother's possessions fit inside the one-bedroom senior living apartment in the small town where she had been born. She was far smarter than her PhD-having granddaughter, and she died poor. Smart is only a construct of correspondence between one's abilities, one's environment, and one's moment in history. I am smart in the right way, in the right time, on the right end of globalization. That's where my essays begin, always begin, by interrogating why me and not my grandmother. Why now and not then? Why this U.S. and not some other U.S.? What, more simply, does my social location say about our society? That is quite different from trying to figure out how everything in our society is about me. My experience cannot speak to immigration, for example. It cannot speak to lesbian or gay or queer lives. A personal essay would not make the distinction. That is not a diss. It is a difference. By interrogating my social location with a careful eye on thick description that moves between empirics and narrative, I have, over the course of hundreds of essays and more than a decade of public writing for an audience who recognized me as a voice of some kind, tried to explore what ourselves say about our society. Along the way, I have shared parts of myself, my history, and my identity to make social theory concrete. The things we touch and smell and see and experience through our senses are how stories become powerful. But I have never wanted to only tell powerfully evocative stories. I have wanted to tell evocative stories that become a problem for power. For that, I draw upon data and research. In every essay in this collection, there is a wealth of theory and data, some academic and some lived, some primary and some secondary, informing every detail of my argument. And these are arguments, in the philosophical sense. They are written to persuade, to change, to affect. That is why who I am matters all the more, and not less. Excluded as I am from the ethos, logos, and pathos of academia, literary arts, humanities, and professional smart people, I have had to appeal to every form of authority simultaneously in every single thing that I have ever written. It is how I fix my feet. Unfortunately, I may have been too good at fixing my feet. Often the work of the argument has been challenged, gone unnoticed, or at least uncommented upon. That is why versions of some of my previous essays are included here, but this time I am showing my work to make clear the thinking that informed them. An essay about Miley Cyrus pantomiming sex acts on MTV is really about the libidinal economy that ironically enough, shapes the personal essay economy that made that essay famous. Comedian Leslie Jones's performance of Vulnerability on Saturday Night Live is about colorism and colonialism. 
Few things shaped my essay on how and why poor people make certain purchases instead of saving money as much as thinking about Veblen, Bordeaux, and black literature from the mid-20th century. Long-time readers of my work may recognize some parts of these essays, but will find that each of them has been rewritten. My thinking is not fixed in time, and hopefully it never will be. I become more radical about some things as I get older. I am also more forgiving of pettiness these days, even as I become intolerant of willful ignorance. I have 14 reading spots in my home, and three in my university office. I read on a Kindle, and the Kindle app on my Google phone, and with library apps like Overdrive. I have 29 alerts set up for online scholarly databases. Those alerts send me new research featuring my keywords whenever they are published. I buy more periodicals than I will ever fully consume. I read and think a lot. To the extent possible, my entire life is organized to find me 15 more minutes every day in which I can read slowly, often using my finger, as I did as a child, across new words and new ideas. If any of my essays could be republished without rewriting them, I would have failed as the human I work diligently to be. Those spaces to read are a privilege. I have not a room of my own, but a whole house. Occasionally, I am asked to hold forth on being a woman academic. Then, as now, I am always clear that I am an exception to many rules. I do not have children or a spouse. I am not yet a full-time caregiver of, for my parents. I do not come from money. I am, in many ways, the people I study. I have six-figure student loan debt, did not have a credit card that could buy an airline ticket until maybe three years ago, and I obsessively hoard loose change so that I can at least have more than the roughly $300 in the bank that the typical black woman in the United States does not have in savings. Still, I am high-earning. I may work five jobs to afford it, but I can, on occasion, pay a student to edit a paper or an on-demand worker to deliver my groceries. With the privilege to read and to think comes great responsibility. When you have that privilege precisely because so many others like you, black women, are systematically filtered out of every level of social status, then the responsibility is especially great. I hope these essays break open space for black women thinkers to do what we already what we are already doing, but for better rewards. As I have said to anyone who will listen to me, I want a black woman to have one damn job not five or six. In fact, I want that for all of us. Job guarantees and universal basic incomes are part of my core political beliefs, but I would be lying if I said that I did not want the, that kind of baseline economic security first and most of all for sisters. These essays are part of how I came to many of my core beliefs, complete with the privileges to think, the struggle of working multiple jobs to afford those privileges, and the moral philosophy derived from fixing my feet. If anyone ever reads me and finds it useful, as I hope that you do, may doing so spark a gold rush for black women writers at institutions and publications that will pay them and protect them. I hope we build a body politic so thick with contradictions and nuance and humanity and blackness, because blackness is humanity, that no black woman, public, intellectual, has to fix her feet ever again to walk this world. In the name of beauty. 
We need to theorize the meaning of beauty in our lives so that we can educate for critical consciousness, talking through the issues, how we acquire and spend money, how we feel about beauty, what the place of beauty is in our lives when we lack material privilege and even basic resources for living, the meaning and significance of luxury, and the politics of envy. Bell Hooks The very lifestyle of the holders of power contributes to the power that makes it possible because its true conditions of possibility remain unrecognized. Pierre Baudot Miley Cyrus was going through her dangerous phase. She had tattoos and piercings and dildos, and so, of course, she also had to have some black affect to complete the package. It is all part of the pop star toolkit. I decided to write about it. Now, it is pretty common for people, sometimes lots of them, to respond to things I write. Sometimes they share heartbreaking stories of recognition. Other times, angry diatribes about what I get wrong while being a black, a woman, and popular. But of all the things I have written, nothing has inspired more direct, intense emotional engagement than what I wrote about post-Disney pop star Miley Cyrus. What had me stuck, momentarily, wasn't just the heightened emotions of those who took me to task, but rather who was leading the charge. I am accustomed to men and white people being angry with me. That is par for the course. But when black women are mad at me, it is a special kind of contrition, and I take the time to figure out my responsibility. Something clearly wasn't registering in this scenario, because black women were giving me the business. Sisters weren't really angry about my breakdown of just how dangerous Miley Cyrus's performance on a televised award show actually was. They weren't exactly angry that I pointed out the size and shape of the black woman dancers behind her. What black women were angry about was how I located myself in what I'd written. I said, blithely as a matter of, of observable fact, that I am unattractive. Because I am unattractive, the argument went, I have a particular kind of experience of beauty, race, racism, and interacting with what we might call the white gaze. I thought nothing of it at the time I was writing it, which is unusual. I can usually pinpoint what I have said, written, or done that will piss people off, and which people will be pissed off. I missed this one entirely. The comments were brutal, and feedback wasn't confined to the internet. Things got personal. One black male colleague emailed me to say how a black woman friend told him she did not want to read some trash article about how ugly I am when my accompanying picture belied the claim. It was, she insinuated, an appeal for public validation of my physical attractiveness. I did not think that was true, but I was raised right. I told him that was fair and drank myself to sleep. Someone else sent me a link to a Facebook group where many women, but especially more than a few black women, took me to task for hating myself. The person who sent it did not know that I was already a member of the group and had been watching the carnage for days. I never mentioned it. A few months after the essay had been published, I was scheduled to deliver the Mason Sincora Lecture for the Department of English at my alma mater, a historically black college. It was a brutal experience because an HBCU is a special place. I am not the first to acknowledge that, of course. You can learn all about the legacy, the culture, the challenges, and the faults of black colleges in books, articles, movies, television shows, and documentaries. But few of those things have ever described the primary reason why HBCUs are so special to me. 
When I was 11 years old, my waist caved in and my breasts sprung out. I could not be left alone at the school bus stop anymore. It was dangerous because men can be dangerous. I had some preparation for that. My mother had been, I believe, sexually victimized as a child. She doesn't speak of it except when her sentences fade out in retelling certain stories. But it was there in how protective she was of me, an only child of a single mother. There were no men allowed in our house except for family, and even then only under her direct guidance. I wanted your home to be safe, made for children and not adults, she has told me. Only children learn to gauge their single parents' emotional needs. It is vital for your survival, and you eventually learn, necessary, if you are going to help your only adult protection in the world keep you both safe. I intuited from my mother's caution that I should be cautious of men, defensive of whatever I was calling home at any given time. My heart, my mental health, my car, my bedroom, my checkbook, my dreams, my body. Decades before I valued myself enough to be careful for myself, I was careful so that my mother would not worry. If I knew to be cautious of men, I did not learn early enough to be cautious of white women. The first time a white woman teacher told me that my breasts were distracting was in the sixth grade. Over the years, white women with authority over me have told me how wrong or dangerous or deviant my body is. As with that teacher, many of their comments focus on my breasts as opposed to, say, my ass. The next year I entered middle school, where you learn the rules of sexual presentation. That is where I started to discover that while my breasts distracted some of the boys and men, all distractions were not created equally. As part of the last generation of Carolinians to attend the integrated schools that Brown v. Board of Education ushered into existence, I went to school with a lot of white people. Because of the racial composition of the districts drawn in my then-progressive school district, I also went to school with many South Asian and Latino kids. That racial and ethnic integration mattered to the rules I learned about being sexual, desirable, visible, and unseen. Unlike home, where much of my social world was filtered through my mother's preference for African-American history and culture, at school I learned that nothing was more beautiful than blonde. The first time it happened was middle school. I heard a white boy, a bit of a loser with a crooked haircut, who acted out because he couldn't bear to be unseen, say, that's a real blonde, about a girl in class, and I was confused. The only hair coloring I knew of at 14 years old was the kind my grandmother used to fix her edges, where curly gray hairs did not blend in properly with her wig. I had no idea what a real or fake blonde was, but I could intuit, much like my mother's fears, that the slacker boy was communicating some valuable social fact. Later, we watched the musical Grease in a high school English class. In the final scene, when Olivia Newton-John's Sandy shows up at the carnival in shiny, skin-tight pants, all the black kids tittered. She looked funny. There was so much space between her legs. <laughs> a white boy, too tall to be in the 10th grade, reared back and shouted, My hot damn, Miss Newton-John. I remember the scene so clearly, because that was when I got it. A whole other culture of desirability had been playing out just above and beyond my awareness, while my mostly black and Latino friends traded jokes at gapped thighs, flat behinds, and never trusting a big butt and a smile. And when the teacher, a middle-aged white woman not unlike the one who once told me my breasts were too distracting, looked at the too tall boy, she smiled at him and rolled her eyes, 
acknowledging his sexual appreciation of Sandy as normal, if unmannerly. He smiled back and kind of shrugged as if to say, I just can't help myself. The teacher and the two tall boy were in cahoots. Sandy, that strange creature, was beautiful. Middle school moments, school dances, lunchroom strategies, and weekend sleepovers start to shake out the, the racial segregation of even the most utopian integrated schools. The white kids were your school friends, never your home friends. You took the gifted math classes together, but you would not be on the lake with them over the weekend. We took that as normal. When we were together, politely sociable in classrooms and hallways, I learned what was beautiful. By high school, I knew that I was not it. All girls in high school have self-esteem issues, and most girls compare themselves to unattainable, unrealistic physical ideals. That is not what I am talking about. That is the violence of gender that happens to all of us in slightly different ways. I am talking about a kind of capital. It is not just the preferences of a too tall boy, but the way authority validates his preferences as normal. I had high school boyfriends. I had a social circle. I had evidence that I was valuable in certain contexts. But I had also parsed that there was something powerful about blondness, thinness, flatness, and gaps between thighs. And that power was the context against which all others defined themselves. That was beauty. And while few young women in high school could say they felt like they lived up to beauty, only the non-white girls could never be beautiful. That is because beauty isn't actually what you look like. Beauty is the preferences that reproduce the existing social order. What is beautiful is whatever will keep weekend lake parties safe from strange, darker people. When white feminists catalog how beauty standards over time have changed, from the curvier Marilyn Monroe to the skeletal Twiggy to the synthetic athletic Pamela Anderson, their archetypes belie beauty's true function, whiteness. Whiteness exists as a response to blackness. Whiteness is a violent socio-cultural regime legitimized by property to always make clear who is black by fastidiously delineating who is officially white. It would stand to reason that beauty's ultimate function is to exclude blackness, that beauty also violently conditions white women and symbolically precludes the existence of gender nonconforming people is a bonus. Some of the white girls I went to high school with may not have been beautiful. They may be thin when they should be fit or narrow of jaw when it should be strong, but should power need them to be, social, economic, and political forces could make those girls beautiful by reshaping social norms. As long as the beautiful people are white, what is beautiful at any given time can be renegotiated without redistributing capital from white to non-white people. Feminists have chronicled the changing standards of female beauty over time. One of the more popular examples of this is reborn on the internet every couple of years. In the meme, readers are asked to guess what size dress Marilyn Monroe would wear today. One is supposed to gasp at the realization that the iconic popular culture beauty was a size 12. Memes are just born digital nuggets of cultural norms. Whether the lolcat is funny or Marilyn is beautiful or a gif of a YouTube prank is gross all depends on the norms of the culture that produced the meme. In the case of Marilyn Monroe's dress size, the meme assumes a Western U.S. Iconog iconography. 
Marilyn is not just beautiful. She defines the beauty ideals of an entire era in U.S. popular culture. If you do not recognize that belief is your own, the meme will make no sense. The expectation that you should be shocked by Marilyn's dress size also relies on an audience who will share an idea about who is fat. And the audience must share the notion that fat and beauty are antithetical. Of course, fat has not always been juxtaposed against beauty in white Western culture. Artists point to the Rubenesque female bodies of the 17th century as an example of how fat bodies were once the beauty ideal. They are also an ideal meant to lionize a version of white Western history. Naomi Wolf made the idea of examining beauty ideals across time a white third wave... Sorry... Naomi Wolf made the idea of examining beauty ideals across time a white third-wave feminist cause du jour. In the beauty myth, Wolf excises the expectations of female beauty from the economic context that produces them, holding both up for feminist critique. As others have noted, Wolf does not do much work on how economic and political conditions produce a white hegemonic body as the ultimate expression of beauty. More precisely, Wolf demonstrates that as the socio-political context of whiteness, the political state-sanctioned regime, tussles with historical forces like falling stock markets, mass media, suburbanization, and war, it will reshape an acceptable beauty standard for women that adjusts for body types but never for body color. That was not Wolf's argument, but the absence of such a critique rather proves the point beauty is for white women. It is a white woman's problem if you are a feminist, or a white woman's grace if you are something else not feminist. Beauty, in a meme or in the beauty myth, only holds as a meaningful cultural artifact through which we can examine politics, economics, and laws, and identify if we all share the assumption that beauty is precisely because it excludes non-white women. Black women have examined where we are located in the beauty myth, examining the political economy through our bodies. If we could never be assumed beautiful in white culture's memes, histories, and feminisms, we could create other standards. Like feminist critiques of Rubin's renderings of white jiggling flesh, we have turned to cultural production for evidence of how we can ever be beautiful. Patricia Hill Collins's Black Sexual Politics is the most notable shot across the bow. Collins does not exactly wade into the complicated depth of race, class, nationalism, culture, economics, and the politics of how black sexuality is refracted through the, rare, through the racial hierarchy that precludes black women from being beautiful. She is, however, critical to defining a school of intellectual thought that gives us tools to understand these dynamics. Some of her most strident critique is saved for the compromises inherent in hip-hop culture. Here is a cultural product where blackness can be a critical feedback loop to the white mass media images of black women as caricatures. What Collins finds instead is a space where black masculine ideals, ideas about black women create ever more hierarchies of desirability based on body type, for example. Those hierarchies rarely go so far as to challenge the supremacy of white female beauty. Black hip-hop feminists brought a deeper engagement with the complexities of hip-hop culture to bear on Collins's critique. Joan Morgan's When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost, A Hip-Hop Feminist Breaks It Down locates a black femi 
feminist voice in hip-hop culture, however marginalized in mainstream media. Despite arguing that the generation I claim is misguidedly overprotective, hopelessly male-identified, and all too often self-sacrificing, hip-hop-era feminists excavate a cultural history where we have tried to claim a space for black beauty. In 2014, comedian Leslie Jones performed a skit on Saturday Night Live about the complexities of claiming that space. In the skit, she turns the pain of racist beauty hierarchies that academics on the order of Marcus Hunter have studied into the kind of joke that made Richard Pryor so great. For approximately three minutes, Jones bemoans her singleness. It is a frequent well from which she draws in her comedy. The topic is the designation of Lupita Nyong'o as people's most beautiful woman. Jones says that she is waiting for them to put out the most useful list because that's where I'm going to shine. It is a painful comment, but not unfathomable, given what beauty means, even if it said to be embodied by dark-skinned Kenyan-Mexican actress Nyong'o. Jones is flatly saying that she is not beautiful and cannot be beautiful, but that she is useful. She is locating her value not in beauty, but in her use value. The real criticism was directed at her turn to slavery. Back in the slave days, I would have never been single. I am six feet tall and I am strong. I'm just saying black in the slave, back in the slave days, my love life would have been way better. Masa would have hooked, up, hooked me up with the best brother on the plantation. It hurts to watch the video. It's the kind of humor located in pain, not unlike that mind by Richard Pryor a generation ago. But we allowed Pryor his pain. He was an addict with self-esteem issues. He could set himself on fire and turn nigga into an incantation, often for white audiences. But Jones was not allowed to talk about the pain of being undesirable. Free, but black in the white western beauty myth, Jones is laying bare how futile it can be to desire beauty as a black woman. Many people slammed Jones for making light of slavery, especially of the systemic rape of enslaved black women. The argument was that she was mining historical pain for white consumption on a program that its creator, Lorne Michaels, once intoned would never be an urban show. I recall watching the skit and the ensuing social media firestorm about it with dismay. Not a single black woman that I read or followed seemed to empathize with Jones's obvious pain, whereas I had not been able to watch the video clip without pausing several times. Where others saw insult, I saw injury. The joke was not on enslaved black women of yesteryear, but on the idea that it would take a totalizing system of enslavement to counter the structural violence that beauty does to Jones in her life today. Perhaps I caught what others missed because I am something different than Patricia Hill Collins or Joan Morgan or other important black women scholars of black feminism. I am dark, physically and culturally. My complexion is not close to whiteness and my family roots reflect the economic realities of generations of dark complexioned black people. We are rural, even when we move to cities. Our mobility is modest. Our out-marriage rates to non-black men are negligible. Our social networks do not connect to elite black social institutions. When we move around in the world, we brush up against the criminal justice system. I am not located at the top of hip-hop's attenuated beauty hierarchy. I am, at best, in the middle. As Michael Jackson once sang, 
When you're too high to get over it and too low to get under it, you are stuck in the middle and the pain is thunder. We have yet to make strides toward fleshing out a theory of desirability, the desire to be desired, in black feminist theory or politics. There is indeed a philosophy in how Jones desires being desired. That Nyong'o was atop a list of the world's most beautiful people does not invalidate the reality for many dark-skinned black women any more than Mark Zuckerberg making a billion dollars as a college dropout invalidates the value for, of college for millions. Indeed, any system of oppression must allow exceptions to invalidate itself as meritorious. How else will those who are oppressed by this system internalize their own oppression? This is what I did not yet understand when I was watching Miss Newton-John. I was not beautiful and could never, no matter what was in fashion to serve the interests of capital and power, become beautiful. That was the theory trapped in my bones when I left for my Mecca, my HBCU. My first night as a college freshman at my HBCU, I ordered a pizza. The man boy who delivered it stared too long before he handed it over. I snapped and grabbed my pizza. As I did, he muttered something about my phone number. I would date him off and on for a decade. As I walked back into the lobby of Eagleson Hall, I turned just as the pizza man boy caught the eye of our dorm supervisor, an older black man. The man gave him a look like the one the teacher had once given the two tall boy overtaken by Olivia Newton-John's spandexed thighs. I was Sandy. At this institution, I could be a kind of beautiful, normal, normative, taken for granted as desirable. It is one of many reasons that I loved my HBCU. Not because I got a few phone numbers or had a few boyfriends, but because I wasn't being defined by a standard of beauty that, by definition, could not include someone who looked like me. Don't get me wrong, the standard is complicated. It has the same economic costs to perform it as the ones white feminists argue that the massive global beauty industry exacts from white women. The cost may be even higher because black women have fewer resources to purchase the accoutrements of thin waists, thick hips, tattooed brows, elegant contouring, red-heeled shoes, and femme styling that contemporary black beauty standards require. Black women experience negative consequences for not performing it sufficiently, especially if they are not straight, cisgender, or otherwise normative. But feeling desired opened up avenues of inclusion that shaped my sense of self. That inclusion is what I was coming home to the day I delivered a lecture at my dear old NCC. After 60 minutes or so of talking about the things my hosts had asked me to discuss, I opened the floor to questions. The first one was from a young sister about halfway back and to my left. The lighting shadowed her face, but I could make out her body language. I speak black woman fluently. My body recognized hers, and I stood up straighter as she took the microphone and said, We read your thing in class, and Miley Cyrus ain't even do all that. Just because you ugly don't mean all black women are ugly. The room lit up. It seems all the English professors in attendance had assigned that essay as an example of what I do, and everyone in attendance had thoughts and feelings about it. I did a little verbal dancing, trying to explain how we critique popular culture, and then moved on to the next question. Another young woman, another comment on how black and white people are friends now, unlike back in the day. 
Those black women are Miley's friends, and the white women I have written about who touch me in public are apparently doing so because they want to be my friend. Again, the idea of my body's value and social context was the priority issue. These students weren't saying... These students were saying, in as many ways as they could, that I could not be ugly because white people find me desirable. They were also saying, in their insistence and with their bodies, what more seasoned black women were saying to me in response to my essay. They were saying we had fought too long, worked too hard, come too far to concede that that what white people have said about us is true. White people, as a collective system of cultural and economic production that has colonized non-white people across the globe through military and ideological warfare, have said that black people are animalistic. But, as Sister Bell Hooks and many others have pointed out, animals with dicks can be useful. They can be tall, dark, and handsome, if not also dangerous. There is no ideological exception to anti-blackness for black women, but through colorism. Mulatto, mixed, high yellow, light, all euphemisms for black people whose phenotype signals that they may have some genetic proximity to whiteness. But, by definition, black women are not beautiful except for any whiteness that may be in them. Black women have worked hard to write a counter-narrative of our worth in a global system where beauty is the only legitimate capital allowed women without legal, political, and economic challenge. That last bit is important. Beauty is not good capital. It compounds the oppression of gender. It constrains those who identify as women against their will. It costs money and demands money. It colonizes. It hurts. It is painful. It can never be fully satisfied. It is not useful for human flourishing. Beauty is, like all capital, merely valuable. Because it is valuable, black women have said that we are beautiful too. We have traveled the cultural imaginations of the world's non-white people, assembling a beauty construct that does not exclude us. We create culture about our beauty. We negotiate with black men to legitimize our beauty. We try to construct something that feels like liberation in an inherently oppressive regime, balancing peace with our marginally more privileged, lighter-skinned black women while refuting the global caste status of darker-skinned black women. Some of us try to include multiple genders and politics in our definition of beauty. This kind of work requires discursive loyalty. We must name it and claim it because naming is about the only unilateral power we have. When I say that I am unattractive, concede that I am ugly, the antithesis of beauty, I sound like I am internalizing a white standard of beauty that black women fight hard to rise above. But my truth is quite the opposite. When oppressed people become complicit in their oppression, joining the dominant class in their ideas about what we are, it is symbolic violence. Like all concepts, symbolic violence has a context that is important for using it to mean what we intend to mean. It is not just that internalizing the values of the dominant class violently stigmatizes us. Symbolic violence only makes sense if we accept its priors, all preferences in imperial Imperial, industrialized societies are shaped by the economic system. There aren't any good preferences. There are only preferences that are validated by others differently based on social contexts. These contexts should not just be reduced to race, class, and gender, as important as those are. 
Institutions that legitimize the right ideas and behaviors also matter. That's why beauty can never be about preference. I just like what I like is always a capitalist lie. Beauty would be a useless concept for capital if it were only a preference in the purest sense. Capital demands that beauty be coercive. If beauty matters at all to how people perceive you, how institutions treat you, which rules are applied to you, and what choices you can make, then beauty must also be a structure of patterns, institutions, and exchanges that eats your preferences for lunch. Internalizing your inferiority is violent. Psychologically, it cleaves you in two, what W.E.B. Dubois famously called the double veil. As our science becomes more advanced, we find that the violence may even show up in our bodies as stress. Structurally, that violence becomes coded in the social norms about around respectability that we black people used to do the dominant culture's work of disciplining other black people's identities, behaviors, and bodies. It is rational to check me if I am doing this kind of work for the devil. But lest we forget, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing us that he does not exist. That is why naming is political. Our so-called counter-narratives about beauty and what they demand of us cannot be divorced from the fact that beauty is contingent upon capitalism. Even our resistance becomes a means to commodify, and what is commodified is always, always stratified. There's simply no other way. To coerce, beauty must exclude. Exclusion can be part of a certain kind of liberation, where one dominant regime is overthrown for another, but it cannot be universal. I love us loving ourselves under the most difficult conditions, but I must also write into my idea of truth and freedom. From my perch, trying to fillet the thinnest sections of popular culture, history, sociology, and my own biography, there isn't any room for error. I have to call a thing a thing. And sometimes, when we are trapped in the race not to be complicit in our own oppression, self-definition masquerades as a notion of loving our black selves in white terms. More than that, critique that hides the power being played out in the theater of our everyday lives only serves that power. It doesn't actually challenge it. When I say that I am unattractive or ugly, I am not internalizing the dominant culture's assessment of me. I am naming what has been done to me and signaling who did it. I am glad that doing so unsettles folks, including the many white women who wrote to me with impassioned cases for how beautiful I am. They offered me neoliberal self-help nonsense that borders on the religious. They need me to believe beauty is both achievable and individual, because the alternative makes them vulnerable. If you do not earn beauty, never had the real power to reject it, then you are as much a vulnerable subject as I am in your own way. Deal with that rather than dealing with me. Compared with the forms of oppression they can now see via their proximity to me, it may seem to privileged people that it is easier to fix me than it is to fix the world. I live to disabuse people of that notion. But it is interesting to think about why many white women, a handful of white men, and a few black men rejected my claim. Their interests cannot be the same as those of black women, whose stake in my claim that beauty excludes me is deeply intimate. White women, especially white feminists, need me to lean into pseudo-religious consumerist teachings that beauty is democratic and achievable. Beauty must be democratic. 
If it is not, then beauty becomes a commodity, distributed unequally, and, even worse, at random. This is a notion often ascribed to a type of feminism, be it neoliberal feminism, marketplace feminism, or consumption feminism. But well-meaning white women also need me to believe because accessing beauty is about this totalizing construct of gender, in this case of femininity, in a world where other forms of lifestyle consumption are splintering. You can use an app to buy the foods of the rich, the music of the cool, the art of the revolutionary, and the look of the aspirational. But femininity is resistant to appification and frictionless consumption. Femininity is not about biological sex, but about the traits that have become ascribed to biological sex. And this set of traits carries a set of ideas and histories contingent upon the economics and politics of any given time. You cannot separate what it means to be a woman, often used to mean a performance of acceptable femininity, from the conditions that decide what is and is not acceptable across time and space. We all do this kind of performance of ourselves, be it our gender or race or social class or national identity or culture. As we are doing it, we are always negotiating with powerful ideas about what constitutes a woman. Beauty has an aesthetic, but it is not the same as aesthetics, not when it can be embodied, controlled by powerful interests, and when it can be commodified. Beauty can be manners, also a socially contingent set of traits. Whatever power decides that beauty is, it must, also, it must always be more than reducible to a single thing. Beauty is a wonderful form of capital, capital in a world that organizes everything around gender and then requires a performance of gender that makes some of its members more equal than others. Beauty would not be such a useful distinction were it not for the economic and political conditions. It is trite at this point to point out capitalism, which is precisely why it must be pointed out. Systems of exchange tend to generate the kind of ideas that work well as exchanges. Because it can be an idea, and a good, and a body, beauty serves many useful functions for our economic system. Even better, beauty can be political. It can exclude and include, one of the basic conditions of any politics. Beauty has it all. It can be political, economic, external, individualized, generalizing, exclusionary, and perhaps, best of all, a story that can be told. Our dominant story of beauty is that it is simultaneously a blessing of genetics or gods and a site of conversion. You can become beautiful if you accept the right prophets and their wisdoms with a side of products thrown in for good measure. Forget that these two ideas, unique blessing and earned reward, are antithetical to each other. That makes beauty all the more perfect for our social and political time. Itself anchored in paradoxes like freedom and property, opportunity and equality. There is now an entire shelf among the periodicals at my nearby chain bookstore, filled with magazines that will give me five meditations or three coloring book pages or nine yoga retreats or 14 farmhouse ideas or 19 paper crafting inspirations that, if purchased, will acculturate me to achievable inner beauty. Mind you, the consumption is always external and public. These are quite literally called lifestyle magazines, which begs the question, whose lifestyle? These are ways of expressing a kind of femininity, 
a kind of woman for whom beauty is defined to selectively include or exclude. These are consumption goods made for a lifestyle associated with white Western women of a certain status, class, profession, and disposition. These are for women who can be beautiful, if only conditionally, and contingent upon the needs of markets and states, and the men whom states and markets serve most and best. All of the admonishments that I should love myself, and am as cute as a button, from well-intentioned white women stem from their need for me to consume what is produced for them. What those white women did not know or could not admit to knowing is that I cannot, by definition, ever be that kind of beautiful. In the way that gender has so structured how we remove through the intersecting planets of class and status and income and wealth that shape our world and ourselves, so does race. Rather, I should say, so does blackness, because everyone, including white women, have race. It is actually blackness, as it has been created through the history of colonization, imperialism, and domination, that excludes me from the forces of beauty. For beauty to function as it should, it must exclude me. Big beauty, the structure of who can be beautiful, the stories we tell about beauty, the value we assign beauty, the power given to those with beauty, the disciplining effect of the fear of losing beauty you might possess, definitionally excludes the kind of blackness I carry in my history and my bones. Beauty is for white women, if not for all white women. If beauty is to matter at all for capital, it can never be for black women. But if I believe that I can become beautiful, I become an economic subject. My desire becomes a market, and my faith becomes a salve from the white for the white women who want to have the right politics while keeping the privilege of never having to live them. White women need me to believe I can earn beauty, because when I want what I cannot have, what they have becomes all the more valuable. I refuse them. I also refuse the men. Oh, the men. I wish I could save this for another essay that I would promise to write but never do. Women's desire for beauty is a powerful weapon for exploitation. Even if the desire is natural, in that it is rational and also subconsciously coercive, open wanting against a backdrop of predatory constructs of cross-gender interactions is dangerous for women. There is an entire industry of men, self-proclaimed pickup artists, who sell their strategies for landing women. One of the most common techniques involves negging. This is when a man approaches a woman whose embodied beauty exceeds his own status. She is out of his league. His league is typically determined by height, penis size, sexual experience, body type, and money, but can also take into account tastes and preferences. Some men say they turn to pick up artistry when the preferences so well suited to their social position, say voting for a reviled political candidate or playing certain types of video games, are devalued in mate markets. Once a woman is identified, the pickup artist might compliment her style, but mention that her teeth are imperfect. This is supposed to destabilize the woman, make her question what power she holds in the exchange, and eventually mold her into a more docile subject for sexual conquest. Good men love to mock pickup artists and negging as evidence of their goodness, but good men also consume beauty, contributing much to its value. Without good men, the socio-cultural institution of big beauty could not be as powerful as it is. 
Big beauty encompasses the norms that shape desirable traits in a romantic partner, but also acceptable presentations of women in work, at play, and in public. It is the industrial complex of cosmetics, enhancements, and services that promise individual be women beauty. The idea that big beauty is evil, but good men are nice, is part of big beauty's systematic charm. Big beauty is just negging without the slimy actor. The constant destabilization of self is part and parcel of beauty's effectiveness as a social construct. When a woman must consume the tastes of her social position to keep it, but cannot control the tastes that define said position, she is suspended in a state of being negged. A good man need only then to come along and capitalize on the moment of negging, exploit the value of negged women, and consume that beauty that negs. It is really quite neat if you think about it. For black women who are engaging black men with the assumption that sexual engagement is within the realm of possibility, negging develops in a new depth. I suspect this is true of all non-white male-female interactions shaped by sexual potential. They may be moderated by their proximity to whiteness. A fair-skinned Latina might have a different depth of this experience than a darker-skinned Afro-Latina. But the relations still hold. Women who are not white must contend with beauty through the gaze of white men and non-white men. This is perhaps the hardest of all these situations for me to describe. How do I distill something that is so diffuse across my life? That is what the relationship between my agency, the constraints of beauty, and the structure of race feels like. It has always been a part of the threads that are stitching me. What these black men seemed to have wanted is the easiest way to suspend me from their, to suspend me between their wanting and my own. They needed me to reflect the duality of beauty regimes that exist in their corner of the social world. That's the corner where heterosexual masculinity does to them similar things that heterosexual femininity does to me, but differently, at variable rates and with distinct political consequences. But unlike the space from which I emerge, these black men can poke holes in the walls that for me are, in, are impenetrable. They must travel through sexual ideologies about bulls and bucks, losing some skin as they scrape through the walls that beauty erects around social status. That is why it is so important for me, a sister and a sista, to reflect back at them the dominant beauty structure of white femininity and the subordinate beauty structure of black womanhood. Black women have to both aspire to the unattainable paradox of white beauty and cultivate its counter-paradox because both must exist for black masculinity to retain the privilege of moving between two social spaces of potential mates. If I reinforce the white beauty norm, then I reproduce it in a way that benefits white women. If black masculinity can or may or does benefit from having the option of hitching its star to white beauty, then it needs black women to play our part. But where there is dominance, there is also subordination. Black people have a whole structure of class and income and wealth and tastes and preferences. It stands to reason that we also have a construct of beauty that shapes and stratifies good black women and bad black women and so on. If black masculinity benefits from the option of hooking up with black women, then it has to value at least the performance of black beauty. Playing my part would look like espousing what a thick black stallion I am, while coveting the beautiful white woman I could never become. 
If I play my part, black masculinity benefits. White women needed me to nag myself, and black men needed me to nag them at the expense of myself. Either way, I was losing, and I knew it. Repeatedly, people have said to me in their own way, from within their own stratified statuses, that I need to believe I am beautiful, or can become beautiful. Not for my own benefit, but because it serves so many others. I reject the implicit bid for solidarity from every single white woman, and I reject every overture from a man who wants to convince me that I am beautiful. I want nice people with nice enough politics to look at me, reason for themselves that I am worthy, and feel convicted when the world does not agree. God willing, they may one day extrapolate my specific case to the general rule, seeing the way oppression marginalizes others to their personal benefit. I do not have any issues of self-worth. Well, no more than anyone who used to be young and now is not. I am sensible. I know the streets in pre-gentrified communities where old men will still look twice and someone behind a counter might give me an extra piece of something for free. I know that cute and attractive are categories that exist with their own attended privileges. But none of these things negates the structural apparatus that controls access to resources and ad hoc designates those with capital as beauty's gatekeepers. When beauty is white and I am dark, it means that I am more likely to be punished in school, to receive higher sentences for crimes, less likely to marry, and less likely to marry someone with equal or higher economic status. Denying these empirical realities is its own kind of violence, even when our intentions are good. They say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and that ugly is as ugly does. Both are lies. Ugly is everything done to you in the name of beauty. Knowing the difference is part of getting free.